Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Charles. And this is The Parallax Review. Hello, welcome to episode three of the Parallax Review. What movie did we watch this week? We watched Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho. So Parasite came out, wide release, I believe, last week, and we saw it today at the Arclight Cinema in Chicago. Right, but people have been talking about it for a while now, so when did it, like, it must have, it came out earlier, right? Yeah, it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival in May, I believe, and it won the Palme d'Or. What is the Palme d'Or? The Palme d'Or is the, I don't know anything else about it besides the fact that it is the highest award you can win at the Cannes Film Festival. Okay. And actually, uh, Bong Joon-ho is the first South Korean director to win that prize. So history has been made. Bong Joon-ho major up. Yes, major key. Oh, you're right. You're right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this had two writers. One of them being Bong Joon-ho and then Jin Won Han, which I couldn't find a lot of information on him, but mm-hmm. him or her, honestly, I yeah. don't know. But uh, they have written with Bong Joon-ho before for other films. Do you know what other films? They collaborated on Okja and Jin Won Han also collaborated with another writer on a movie called Take Point, which I've never even heard of before. No. I don't know why you would, but I've sure. heard of Okja. I heard that was great. Yeah, because it came out on Netflix. Oh, it came out on Netflix? Yeah, because wow. he couldn't get the funding from any other Hollywood studio. And Netflix was like, we like being in debt. We'll pay you money. <laughs> this comment is going to solidify our lack of ever getting funding from Netflix. But mm-hmm. this must be the only Netflix movie to come out that's that's worth anything. Oh, that's. <laughs> Wait, Okja? No, that's false because guess what? Martin Scorsese also is releasing The Irishman via Netflix. What? Because of of aforementioned deep pockets full of debt. Because of Netflix's deep pockets of debt? Yeah, like I that was like a headline I feel like this week. Didn't read it, just heard about it vaguely on film podcasts. But apparently Netflix is like in super debt, like billions of dollars worth of debt, but they somehow can fund really expensive movies. So Martin Scorsese was like, I quoted them an insane number and they were just like, yeah, we'll make The Irishman. What and is that's going gonna on? that's going to make a lot of money. Yeah, sure, but. Look, um, <laughs> allegedly, none of this, all of this could be false. It, it's a quick Google search, but I don't want y'all to hear me clicking. No clicking. Let's talk about who is in this movie. Okay. We had Song Kang-ho as the father of the unfortunate family, I guess poor family. The Kim family. The Kim family, Mr. Kim. His wife, played by Jung Hye-jin, and their kids. Uh, we had Park So-dam playing the daughter and Choi Woo-sik playing the son. And we also had the rich family opposite them. Um, the Park family. The Parks, yes. The mother played by Jo Yo Jo Yo Jong. Uh, the father played by Lee Soon Kyun. 
the daughter played by Jung Ji So, the son played by Jung Hyun Joon, and their, I guess, kind of housemaid, uh, who is played by Lee Jong Yoon. Maria has seen a bit of Snowpiercer, so she's familiar oh with Song Kang Ho. Um, I can't say I've seen a lot of Korean cinema or these actors and actresses before, so I am not familiar with them. But they were all great. I enjoyed the entire cast. Yeah, same. The acting was phenomenal. All right, so let's get into it. Who did you think this movie was for? I think it's for pretty much anybody that is alive. (laughs) All right, Uh nice. Yeah. Not for dead people. Yes, not for dead people. I'm sorry. Specifically, I maybe half-jokingly put that it's for people that like to use that that heavily memed Martin Niemöller quote that's like, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist, da-da-da-da-da. And then he's like, then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then it ends with... You don't have to tell us the whole thing. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I believe he was a Nazi supporter initially. Initially. And then he sort of realized the error of his ways. So controversial figure, but this quote is literally always a thing when anybody's talking about anything like Trump, for example. So I think it's specifically for people that like to use that quote or maybe feel like they relate to that quote, which I include myself. I think this movie is like entertaining, it's a thriller, it makes me anxious, and it's beautifully done and well written, but it is also a pretty damning display of what we allow ourselves to be okay with and to live with in order to survive. And I think I'll probably talk about that later on um, in a few of our other categories, but yeah, to me, this movie was not just entertainment and i think it is worth thinking about and worth seeing multiple times and i feel that pretty much anyone can benefit from seeing it people should see it multiple times because i don't know that you can get everything in the first viewing yeah sure so after being viciously critiqued in the last episode about my use of general audience and such I decided to try to narrow it down on my end. Okay. And I'm very surprised that you picked kind of a general audience here. I didn't know like anything about this movie going in. So I wasn't sure who I thought the audience was until later on. I decided to watch the trailers for it. And it does seem like a thriller, almost horror looking flick. Mm, Yeah. So I could see a lot of people in that realm being attracted to the movie. It may be difficult for people seeing that trailer who are not thriller horror people Mm -hmm. to want to go see it. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe the reviews and the acclaim will change that. Sure. I guess my answer is more idealist. I think you're right that people that are sort of horror thriller or Bong Joon-ho fans already will be the ones that see this. But in an ideal world, I think everyone should watch this multiple times. Yeah, it's a great movie. Maria, what ideas did you have about what this movie was trying to say? 
this movie is pretty straightforward. It's about class inequality, which is not an uncommon theme of Bong Joon-ho's movies. And that's pretty simple. But when when you sort of watch it as a whole, if you want to dive in more specifically, I really think it's attacking the sort of unbridgeable gap between wealth and poverty. Like social stratification. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the wealth gap seems literally impossible to close. But look at Bill Gates. Look at... Jeff Bezos started from the bottom. Now they're here, right? Yes, yes. <clears throat> and and it is in South Korea, but I don't really think that matters. No, this is a very like global. I mean that this it matters. It matters, but- right? But this is a very this is the global story right now, and Correct. I think it speaks to pretty much anyone everywhere. Yeah, and that's why I think this movie's for everybody. But what do you feel like this movie was saying? The first kind of breakdown I have is that this movie has a very materialist leaning. I define materialism as the idea that human beings, animals, etc. are formed by their material relationships. So like their economic and social conditions, Mm -hmm. primarily. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. For example, you put two animals in a box with like very little resources and they'll probably fight over them, right? They may murder each other, mm-hmm. etc. You put them in a box with like a, a lot of abundant resources, they'll mm-hmm. be more likely to get along mm-hmm. and thrive. Maybe that's a really big oversimplification. Yeah. Oversimplification of that idea, but I just thought I'd put an, uh, like a, an image to it or whatever. So that is what you're just saying is materialism. Yeah. Okay. For example, one of the standout quotes of this movie was when the Kim family decides to have a little bit of a party in the rich family's house while they're supposedly away camping and mr kim goes on the defense of the park family and says you know they're rich but they're still nice Mm. and mrs kim says yeah they're nice because they're rich if i was this rich i would have what i would have time to be nice too or something yeah something to that effect yeah and so it kind of brings this like, what is this nice anyways? Like what it, it brings us all into question. Like, how are we formed by our material conditions and mm. such? Like, how, how much are we formed? I would argue like a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, essentially, that is everything. Right. I just had a bit more on the materialist thing. Maybe one other part. Oh, give it to uh, me. Do and it. it's regarding it's shortly after that scene takes okay. place. Right. Okay. You have the former uh, housekeeper who mm-hmm. comes back to the house oh saying she forgot something. Mm-hmm. It's a really tense situation. The Kim family decides to let her in to get whatever she left behind. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they end up finding out she's oh been storing God. her like husband in the basement. For four years. The housemaid finds the family out that they're all fraud mm-hmm. and kind of tries to blackmail them. Yep. How, how it plays out is that these two very unfortunate families are fighting each other for what I would call like the master's scraps or whatever. Oh, like, literally the uh, master's scraps. And this is like, this is like such a good 
to me is such a good depiction of like materialism and its effects. We have these families who are fighting tooth and nail against each other mm-hmm. when they're not really natural enemies per se. Yep. They're in a they're in a situation where resources are kind of scarce and they are fighting it out for survival. Mhm. We see the Kim family's attitude towards them change later, but only because the Kim family has won against the housekeeper and her family and, her husband, and are in yeah. a better position. And then therefore kind of have this ability to be more... Uh, nice or generous. Yeah, right? exactly. I thought that was a, a really good depiction of that story, if that yes. makes sense. That scene was definitely played partially for laughs i mean it is pretty comical the the house the former housekeeper is literally like sitting on her husband's back like singing a song or something she's acting out kim jong-un oh yes that's what it was okay so she is like literally just like acting out a scene and her husband is like looking all goofy and like laying on the couch underneath her like with his hand his thumb poised over the send button you know to like threaten to send this blackmail it's it's really comical but also extremely dark when you think about the stakes because essentially both families would lose it's not like the former housekeeper is going to get her job back when the park family finds out that she's got her husband living in the basement anyway yeah It's weird that they're both fighting over just basic resources and they both have such a precarious position and they're both so desperate because they have nothing. Right. And I think the big joke or like not joke, but the craziest part about that scene is they're both in this opulent, luxurious house Mm. with everything they could ever maybe want. Yeah. But they're fighting over they're fighting each other. Right. Like over scrap. Yes. So when the former housekeeper walks in, that was definitely like a a moment when the tone of the movie switches. Um, And I was like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And so there was a brief moment when I was like, are they going to start working together? Like, I I didn't know if it would get resolved and then they would start working together to like pool resources, etc. And continue to leech off of the park family but that didn't happen right and in reality you want them to you know like i was hoping for the same i was like oh man you guys both could benefit from this yep and help (laughs) each other to benefit yeah it was it was wild that's that whole scene was really wild yeah i just think The whole wealth gap quality was shown really well all throughout. A visual example that I found incredibly striking is when the Kim daughter and son, I think his name is Kevin maybe, or Kiwoo in Korean, um, and the father, Mr. Kim, they finally escape the park house like that fateful night. And it's pouring rain and they're running out of the neighborhood and back to their own. They take this incredible visual journey where they 
They go down a hill out of the park's neighborhood. And then they're shown going down, I think, like five or six flights of stairs, like different flights of stairs throughout their journey, literally just going down and down and down and down and down. And then there's all this, there's more and more water rushing past their feet. And then they finally get down to their like crummy neighborhood. And one of them is like, this is sewer water. Like it's no longer just like this like cute, like, wow, how peaceful the rain is, rainwater. It's like poop water. Like this is like filth and everyone is swimming in it. And that is where they live. Like they have literally come from like the highest of heights to the lowest of lows where they are essentially in like a sewer and it's their house. Right. That was really dark. That that was a crazy scene. I I think it was there where I started to get emotional. And they really drive this divide home later after, you know, they get cleaned up, sleep in a gymnasium overnight mm-hmm. with a bunch of other people who are out of their homes because of the flood. Mhm. And Mr. Kim is driving Mrs. Park around to get stuff for her son's birthday. Mrs. Park is on the phone with her friend and she's saying, oh, that rain last night was such a blessing, right? Like Mm -hmm. she she reiterates it again. She says it like twice on the phone. And you can see that like for her in her uphill like fancy mansion it was whereas for Mm -hmm. the kim family it was like a nightmare maybe one of the worst nights of their lives yes i would argue it seemed that way right they they're they essentially lost their home to flooding sewers sewer water yeah like it was so striking that they essentially live in two different worlds like the world works and moves differently for each of these families And I thought that was really piercingly, wonderfully portrayed in that scene. Right. Um, One more note I had about the income equality. There's like a million different lines about it. But one that I found striking as I was watching it. um, So when the former housekeeper, they're down in the basement and she's sort of explaining why her husband has been living down here for four years. And she says that he's hiding from debt collectors and when she says that i realize like it literally doesn't matter if she gets another job etc like they're not going to be able to escape the poverty trap that they're in like they're essentially forever stuck in this survival mode or if you want to use the language of the movie as parasites like they will always be and that was crazy to think about yeah and you can tell that in this weird psychotic way uh the housekeeper's husband has come to terms with this like he's mm. like plenty of people live underground i kind of like it here just like just let me live here yeah like, like essentially it's like at least i can live yeah at least and he's not being bothered right at least i can get food from mm-hmm. you know the scraps from mr park mm-hmm. who he strangely enough worships in some weird way yeah that was bizarre god (laughs) man another note i have here this movie seemed to say that not in a good way but in a bad way that people have their places in society and well i'll just bring up this quote i saw from uh feng xiaoqing who is a 
associate professor from the Theater and Film Academy at the Communication University of China. Okay. I just saw this in an article I was reading. He said, okay. uh, South Korean film director Lee Chang-dong once told me that there is a popular Japanese saying about the powerlessness that young people feel when no matter how hard they work, they cannot change their class. Mm. This class rigidity is very common in the world, and we see it in this movie. And mm. I liked that terminology, the class rigidity. That seemed to be part of the message of the movie. Oh, like, yes, absolutely. This was very much depicted by the recurrence of this like smell that the family has, the mm. Kim family has, which is described by the Park family's father, the rich father, as like the smell of old rags that have been like sitting boiled in... rags yeah something like that yeah i mean they described it a few ways sure. they said it smells like the subway yeah the dirty people who ride the subway essentially. yes and he also said like old radish yeah that's right and then he said or boiled rags yeah and this smell is clearly a stand-in for the social strata that the Kim family lives in. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially a stand-in for you smell poor, you are poor. That is an essential difference between you and me, and I can't get over it. Essentially. Right. And even if you look acceptable, yeah, and you look like you're doing fine, mm-hmm. you smell like a poor person. Yeah. I can see your class. Yeah, your class is showing. Yeah. The smell thing was really a strong indicator for me. And I could feel a lot of like emotion coming from that. Yeah, it's ultimately what drives Mr. Kim to kill Mr. Park at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Everyone's so surprised about it. Kind of like, oh, you know, in the news, they're like, oh, Mr. Kim and Mr. Park got along so well. It was so unexpected. Mm-hmm. But you see it coming a mile away. Yeah. It is, it's literally eating at him. Yeah. And it was eating at me. And I was like very ready for him to, I was like, please stab Mr. Kim. (laughs) I mean, Mr. Park. Like, I was like, this is making me ill. Yeah. I mean, at the scene's climax, it all kind of comes together where, Mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the housekeepers, the former housekeeper's husband breaks out of the basement mm-hmm. and decides to kill like the whole Kim family in yeah. revenge for his wife dying. Yeah. Um, and they finally take down the housekeeper's husband mm-hmm. uh, and his corpse falls on top of the car keys, Mr. Park's car keys, which he's trying to get to, to flee and, and, and to take because his his son passed out. Yes, his yeah. son is having an, uh, a seizure. seizure. Yes, and so they need to get him to the hospital. Right, and and Mr. Park wants Mr. Kim to drive him. Like he's like, forget <laughs> forget this person who's been stabbed and yeah. bleeding out. Like let's I'm go. Important. We need to drive. Yeah. If you are not going to drive, give me the keys, which mm-hmm. he throws and la- it ends up under. Uh, the housekeeper's husband's body. Yes. And, you know, Mr. Mister Park, you know, moves the body to get the the keys and he, he makes this, like, hand-waving, you know, motion over his face like this body smells. Yeah. He's and, disgusted by yeah, it. Yeah. And Mr. Kim just loses it at that yeah. point. And, and, you know, that's why he ends up 
you know, stabbing him. And yeah, I I was ready for it. I was like, please, God, fuck this guy. (laughs) I don't know. It was, and I hadn't. It was weird because I hadn't felt that pretty much the entire movie. I hadn't been like, oh, I hope they fuck this rich family over. And I wanted to move into the way that class is represented. So I really think it was smart that the Park family, the wealthy family, was represented as being hashtag good people. Because if they had been represented as like like just some like vapid, super terrible, super greedy, super whatever evil stereotypical evil wealthy people they would have been really non-sympathetic but also not very relatable or real i i think in my personal life when i run into a level of wealth that i am not used to generally those people i would describe as nice like they're i don't really have anything negative to say about them. They're not like, oh, these rich people are so rude or stuck up or whatever. Generally, they're extremely generous and very friendly and super nice and polite, etc. And the Park family is like that. They have normal flaws. Like Mrs. Park is pretty naive. Mr. Park is like well-meaning, but like is clearly used to a certain, to hanging around only a certain class of people. But they're both pretty nice people. Not terrible. They love their kids. They're nice to their housekeeper. So I think it was important that they were portrayed like this. It was very believable. In contrast, I think the Kim family is also dressed as neutral, like... In any other circumstances, they would also probably be qualified as hashtag good people. Um, but all of the things that seem like flaws or bad, stupid choices that they make or immoral things that they do, all of those things are directly related to whatever needs they have or desperation they have in order to survive. And I think that was an interesting thing to to look at. And so going back to that quote of from Mrs. Kim saying, like, literally, I would be nice, too, if I had all this money. I think that's true. And I think that plays out. But af- right after that, she says something like money irons out life's wrinkles, something like this, something about ironing and wrinkles. And I think that is also true. And. I I really appreciated the way that the sort of class differences were portrayed because I don't really think there's like an evil foe in this movie. And I don't really think there's like a hero, even though at the end, sure, I was rooting for the Kim family, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't because I hated the Park family or, you know, they did anything so terrible. Um, yeah, I think that's really important, and I think that it makes for a more accurate picture of today's society. People like b- 
Bill Gates, etc., are lionized in society. They're really nice, great people, whatever. Bill Gates is doing a ton of good. Mm-hmm. Philanthropy. Right. Bill Gates is doing a ton of good um, trying to help out in disease uh, research, etc., in African nations. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very invested in education mm-hmm. in the U.S., which I think is not a good thing. And many educators and education people who work in education would likely agree that oh. he, he has not necessarily been a good force mm. within the educational system. Why is that? It's a lot to get into. Okay. Uh, I would recommend reading a book called No Such Thing as a Free Gift, The Gates Foundation and the Price of Philanthropy mm. by Lindsay McGoey. Um, that may be a better explainer, and it's not this podcast, which is not really about that. Sure. Okay, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, regardless, I mean, to achieve that social position, a lot of very, a lot of very bad things have had to happen, right? Like, um, poor labor practices, um, monopolistic practices, um, which were, you know, taken to task by our government, Mm. um, and things like that. It's just like there is no like in social stratification, there is no like clear villain for the most part. Okay. So you're kind of agreeing with my take on the class representation. Yeah. They're not really being like a clear cut like these are the villains and these are the heroes because in real life, that's never it's never this like black and white thing. Like like some of the people that we would call the most successful capitalists in the United States, for example, like Bill Gates, have done or tried to do good, right? Many would describe him as a hashtag good person, and he is often described that way. But like you said, a lot of bad things had to happen and continue to happen for him to have that amount of wealth is that what you were saying bad things had to happen Maybe no I that's a good point you. yeah i mean a bad social situation like you're saying is in place which keeps him in gotcha in his position but also his own company's practices gotcha okay so okay have, so you were talking about infra bad infrastructure no i was talking about his company's oh, practices okay. my bad but i'm okay. saying that you have a point too in saying I mean, probably the best point mm-hmm. is that the system that exists that keeps him in that position mm-hmm. is bad. Or yes. is, is, yeah, whatever. Yeah, we can say bad. I mean, <laughs> I like, mean I'm not going to beat around the bush. Yeah, yeah. And well, I mean, how, I mean, I'm glad you said that because that feels like the whole thing I got from this movie is that you're seeing the social class stratification it's discussed like the the diff the vast difference between this these families the park family and the kim family is wild and it's disgusting on both ends and you would have to ask could the system or infrastructure in place to even allow this to happen 
something like that to happen, how could it be good? You would have to classify it as bad. People are literally swimming in sewer water while this other family has like 7,000 square feet of a private property and literally don't ever have to worry about their life. Their life wrinkles are ironed out perpetually, we'll say. Which money does, according to Mrs. Kim. According to the philosophy of Mrs. Kim, which I agree with. Yeah. How, how could you say that a system that allows that to happen is anything but bad? So I don't think it's bad for you to say that it's bad. Right. And there's a big difference. Like some people would retort, perhaps, that like anything, bad things happen to good people, etc. But this is a... <laughs> what? I mean, I know people say that. I don't even understand. Uh, well, could, okay. let me... I would love to finish. Fine. Some people may retort that, you know, sometimes bad things happen to good people. Um, but this is a fundamentally different situation, right? Like, this isn't, like, natural law having its way on the world. And I think that's one of the most important things to understand about living under capitalism mm -hmm. is like many of us have grown up in it mm -hmm. and live in it and don't know anything but it mm -hmm. right and it seems like it's the natural world at play mm -hmm. but it's a system that is actively maintained oh, through yeah. law um through inherited wealth e yeah economic power etc correct Pure nature is like a fiction anyways, right? Pure and we have, nature, what do you mean? Like, the idea, the idea that this is like survival of the fittest and we all just have to do what we do to win, right? Yeah, like, like the bootstrap theory, essentially. Sure, yeah, and like some may argue that that's kind of what plays out in these scenarios, but it's assuming that this there is some... I want to say pure nature, but like this pure state of the world that mm. we're all operating in. Yeah. Which is not how it's, reality, which is not, uh, which doesn't align with reality in any way, shape or form. Like we have systems, we have structures, and we actively work in and maintain those things. Yeah. And we can actively change them, right? Yeah. And so that's all. I'm. I guess I'm. I'm saying that that's very important to understand. Okay. Living in this system. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I know what you mean. We could talk about this all day long. But yes, there is a. I remember from school there is an essential. I got the sort of general idea that capitalism, when we decided that that was what we were going to do in America and as it has been established and bolstered through the years that that is the correct orientation for the world for us and the rest of the world and that that is how it should be as if we are sort of balancing the scales like scales of justice scales of everything they are all sort of somehow magically balanced under this idea of pure capitalism and the only reason why they seem unbalanced or ever are unbalanced is because we're not live um somebody 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 on the other side of course 
has made it so that we aren't living in pure capitalism. This is, we talk about this a lot. We could probably go on and on, but we can move on. Like, an, you're saying, like, an other force is screwing up capitalism for us. Yes. For example, something that my dad says a lot is, like, we do live under pure capitalism. And then if I, if either of us brings up an example of, like, how it is totally not this idea of, like, pure capitalism, where the market manages itself, etc. Then he's like, well, that's because the Democrats, whatever. So it's always a person on the other side of your belief system that is fucking shit up for you. So the world would be perfect, but, which is complete bullshit. And I think this movie really represents a sort of real-time response to the bullshit that we've been told to believe and hold on to and i really mean we because obviously this movie takes place in south korea is made by a south korean director and is about south korean class inequality but we did a bit of internet research about what the sort of income inequality is in south korea as compared to the united states and it's worse here So I think this movie is really taking off here as well because we are also disillusioned. I feel like we need to bring up that rock. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) the rock is like... I think at least for us, the true parasite of the film, if that makes any oh, sense. Oh, okay. I okay. Oh, I thought we both I thought we both kinda came to that conclusion. Maybe it was just me. No, I we, I have a theory about multiple parasites, just like the Joker soup. Well <laughs> sure. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree. Sure. Um but as far as the rock, I had kind of noted that the rock seems to be like the physical appearance or manifestation of this like parasite and what oh. a and what a parasite is when I, I i got i went ahead and got the dictionary definition sure. of parasitism oh um it is an intimate association between organisms of two or more kinds especially and this is key one in which a parasite obtains benefits from a host, which it usually injures. Mm. And so in my interpretation of the rock and the rock being the parasite, the rock kind of, and sorry, this is the rock that Min, um, oh my God. the Kim son's friend gives the family before he moves overseas for studies. Yeah. Um, it's supposed to kind of, he said it it's brings... a scholar's rock of some sort yeah, it's and it's supposed, supposed to, to bring, bring wealth. Yeah, wealth, success, something like that. Yes. And um it comes back in the film at several points and mm. seems to be a source of like comfort of some sort to yeah. the sun. It's very it's all so metaphorical. Yeah. And so the in my interpretation this rock represents the dream of like success the mm-hmm. and what i put in 
in quotes, the American dream, which yes. I think is very much also alive in South Korea. Like yeah. <laughs> the American dream as we understand it. Yeah. Turning kind of turning turning people into almost in many cases like needless toilers for its for oh, its purposes. Yeah. Right. And kind of sucking out their lifeblood. And oh. it's this whole like thing I've talked about before with maybe you or my friend uh, Zachary that the whole like matrix sort of thing where okay. you know all the humans are essentially batteries for the robots mm. in the matrix world yeah and how that is like a metaphor for life under capitalism mm-hmm. or whatever you you serve your literal body Mm-hmm. serves capital gets drained you reproduce it until you you know die mm. wither away and it continues on right yeah so in a, in a sense that's what i'm getting out of the rock which actually wow. you know, sounds a lot just like capitalism anyways itself yes. um and that to me was like the movie's parasite okay Wow. Okay. I know we talked about this earlier, but I did not. I don't remember putting the connection together with The Rock and Parasite, but yes, (laughs) I agree. Um, But my interpretation of The Rock is that it it exists for this family. Yes. A sign of sort of hope of of possibility, of luck, of oh, there's potential for our fortune to change. Like this rock literally, it, I think Min said that it it signifies wealth for families. Like it literally said something like that. And actually, I totally bought into that briefly because there's that part, there's the running gag of the, the drunk pissing <laughs> right in, in, essentially in front of their window that's probably going to run into their house. And there's one time when he's doing that and Mr. Kim and his son go outside to, like, attack him to get him to stop. And the son grabs the rock briefly. And then Mr. Kim is like, no, 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 take this water bottle. And I, when he grabbed the rock, I was like, no, you can't grab the rock because your luck will go away. Like, I was buying into the rock's lofty promise for some better life like Hmm. i was doing it in the movie and that was crazy but yeah that rock is everything i that was great right and one of the things we mentioned about the ultimate irony of this rock was you know at the son's birthday party at the end of the movie Oh. The the rich son, I should say. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I don't remember his name. Kim's son and... Yeah, Park Da-song. The Park daughter are, like, making out behind a curtain. And she's like, hey, like, you're thinking about something else. Are you okay? And uh, the son is like, uh, you know, do I fit in here? Like, with mm. all these rich people and their families? Mm-hmm. And she kind of, like, looks a little bit... She doesn't look totally sure of her answer, but she says she nods her head yes. Yeah. And then the son kind of takes it as, you know, all right, well, like, if I want to fit in here, if I want this to be my life or Mm -hmm. whatever, I better go 
you know, deal with anything that would prevent that. Yeah, I and, mean, he wants to secure his position. And in this case, that means killing the only person left that knows that they are uh, frauds, which is the housekeeper's husband. Yep. Since the housekeeper has died at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the part, or, excuse me, the son of the Kim family, Kevin, we'll call him, um, takes the rock and yeah. is clearly going to go down in the basement to bludgeon the housekeeper's husband to death with it. Yeah. And what happens is the housekeeper gets the better of him. You mean uh, her husband does? Sorry, the housekeeper's husband gets the better of uh, Kevin. Yes. And ends up like almost killing him with the rock. The ultimate irony of the rock was just like this whole dream that you believe in ends up killing you, I guess. Yeah. In a way. Or in this case, literally hitting him in the head. Right. Yeah, because he doesn't die. But I did think he was going to. Oh, yeah, he looked like he wasn't yeah. The Rock was wild. It was very metaphorical. Did they like, end up putting it into a stream at the end yeah, of the movie? Yeah, that's what it looked like. Like they just got rid of it. Yeah, like, bye. I don't know if that was meant to signify. Who did that, do you think? Was it not, wasn't it the son? You think so? It was either the son or the mom. There were only people around at the end. Okay, yeah. It wouldn't have been like police or anything. Yeah. But but to me, it still didn't signify the death of his hoping or his dream. Like him putting it in the stream. Or do you feel like it did signify him letting go of... No, I mean, because he doesn't. He yeah, makes that's his what plan I, or yeah. whatever. He's like, oh, I'm concocting this plan to save my father. Right. Yeah. I don't claim to know anything about South Korean, like, economic or political history or current landscape. Um, But I don't think it's hard to sort of parallel what's going on in Parasite to what I personally see every day living in Chicago. Like, I take public transit. Like, I know that subway person smell that they were talking about. I was like... I started to smell it like when he mentioned it. And this movie doesn't even touch on the ways in which race play into all of this. Like it's complicated enough just economically with money. But when you throw race in and a history of racism and how the entire structure of I'm going to say the world is sort of predicated on white supremacy and uplifting white supremacy that is like a whole other ball game. But within South Korea, I did find an article on the New York Times by someone named Brian X. Chen. Um, and he sort of put the movie into perspective from a cultural side that I wouldn't know of. Um, but apparently South Korea's income distribution is bad, like we said. Um But the article says in 2015, the top 10% of South Koreans held 66% of the nation's wealth, while the poorer half of the population held only 2%. And it also said that just like here in America, large numbers of South Korea's elite inherited their wealth. Wow, what's new? Um, 
that's like key, right? Though, like, oh, it, the, it's when essential. you say the nation's wealth, right? Yeah, like that's the nation's wealth. Who generated that wealth? You know, like we all make our nation's wealth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that it gets so divided unevenly is a structural issue. Yeah, right. You you know, like yeah, but the United States is worse according to statistics and some wikipedia facts but um according to wikipedia in 2010 the wealthiest five percent of households in the united states owned approximately 72 percent of financial wealth so that's the wealthiest five percent of households they own approximately 72 percent of financial wealth while the bottom 80% of households has 5% financial wealth, which is like, okay, a lot of percentages, whatever, what does this mean? It's sort of crazy. And I just feel like this movie does a better job than maybe any movie I've seen to sort of hit that, how crazy that is, home in a visual and emotional sense. I had a very, like, visceral, emotional reaction to this. Like, starting at the sewer water scene, I was, like, wanting to cry and pretty much felt that way. Felt really ill throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, Oh, I have one more thing. So we kind of talked about, okay, so earlier you talked about, what was it? Income rigidity? Was it uh, class rigidity? Class rigidity. So that was interesting because you said that that person said that was a Japanese term. I don't know if the term was Japanese. The um or origin. the sentiment regarding the class rigidity with young people oh. was from a Japanese from Japanese students, perhaps, I think. Okay. So That idea of class rigidity was also brought up in this New York Times article, which I will link in the show notes. Um, The article says South Koreans have created terminology to denote the class differences. Quote, people who are born with a gold spoon are the ones who have made it. The have-nots are dirt spoons. They will always be given a dirt spoon and it will always be a struggle. And I thought that was like profound that they like, you know, these like slang terms, gold spoon, dirt spoon. But like the part about they will always be given a dirt spoon, which is essentially like you are literally trapped because everyone's just going to treat you like shit. Everyone's going to treat you like that's all you deserve. Just like all of the people that are like, oh, these poor people on food stamps and getting uh, money from the government. Why do they deserve? Why did they get a check from the government and go buy a TV? Why did they go buy sneakers? Why do they deserve a nice phone? And that is literally like dirt spoon philosophy like they they deserve a fucking dirt spoon they don't no they don't deserve to be able to spend their money on whatever they want i i want a mcmansion with five and a half bathrooms and seven bedrooms for my two kids and me and my husband like they don't get a cell phone 
They don't get to buy new Nike sneakers because they're fucking poor and they need to act like it. That's, I mean, that's really, when I hear people say that, that is exactly what they're saying. Like, do not bullshit me and act like, oh, I'd be fine with social services and giving people money if they would just spend it, if they would act like they fucking deserve it. That's essentially like what you're saying. So like, sorry, I have a lot of feelings about this. Uh, sure. Especially because generally what is not said is that the people they have in their heads that they're picturing look like me. They are black. That's just facts. Yeah. And you generally the people saying it are not black or a person of color at all. Anyway. I mean, <laughs> you're talking about the, these terms that they have in south korea the dirt spoon the gold spoon yes like low-key have those in many ways okay one of them being i remember reading um byung chul han's psychopolitics oh the book you always want me to read right uh a couple of years back now mm-hmm. and he had mentioned I, I wish I could remember the name of the company. I ended up finding articles about them later, but mm-hmm. they were a company that would gather and sell data from, you know, people's shopping, social media mm. preferences, etc. Okay. And they would sell this data to companies who wanted to sell us things, right? Okay. And so therefore they had to kind of rank uh, and group the mm. you know people together yeah. and right like you know so this person has this much capital they spend this much money mm-hmm. I, mean, I wouldn't say capital capital and wealth are two different things yeah. this this person has this much you know wealth spending power sure. etc yeah um they spend this much a month they earn this much a month mm-hmm. they talk about the stuff they spend mm-hmm. this much mm-hmm. they have this much influence over other people you know they're they're storing all this data as best they can and grouping yeah. it all together so mm-hmm. you know you have high you have somebody who spends a ton of money that yes. these companies want their data so they oh, can yeah. sell their stuff to them right oh yeah and you get all the way down to the lowest category mm-hmm. and they had designated with this category with the name waste category. And we're talking about people, right? Oh my God, yeah. We're talking about a group of people in their system designated as waste. Like yes. the word waste, I'm not making this up. Like this is oh my God. how they these people, this is how this group was designated in yes. their system. And they, you know, they got, they ended up catching a lot of flack for it, probably changing it, whatever. It's the same idea, right? Yes. And this is how we're, this is, I mean, this is like the curtains off. This is like the mask off yeah, version mask of off. like class society in America, right? Yes. Like, oh, yeah, because maybe more specifically in the United States, our value is often like how much we can consume and oh. how efficiently so and so yes it makes sense that the people that have no resources to consume are waste right right? exactly they are literal garbage because they don't can't contribute to the main running the sort of the main generator of our country's wealth and value and power and the weird part is so like you said people's value is often determined by their 
consumption, right? Yes. And like since poor people can't consume, yes. they're awful, often, they're always, I'm not going to say Oh, often, yeah, not often. They're often, always. always valued far less than anyone else in yes. society. And one of the funny things around that is that poverty alleviation in the United States mm-hmm. a lot of the time comes from this angle of like we need to help people become consumers I don't know how else to describe that but oh like my God, yeah. we need these people to have money so they can spend money yeah. right yes like we need the economy to keep going Oof, so yeah. if we can funnel some more money to these poor people so that mm-hmm. they consume, that mm-hmm. would be great. But that mm-hmm. and that a lot of that that's a lot of the times that is the economic angle towards poverty alleviation. Sometimes under humanitarian guise or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And like often under an actual humanitarian guise. Yeah. But it's funny that not guise, humanitarian desire. Okay. But it's funny that that is even the consideration right like that we need we need to help these people because they're not consuming enough or like yeah. contributing to the economy through their consumption correct i yeah this is conjuring so much but i agree and we've talked about this we talk about variations of this a lot and that's why i feel like we both have a lot to say <laughs> sure. about this movie i that brought up so much. Like, for example, I think I've never really been able to, like, qualify what it is about gentrification that bothers me. And I'm not sure other people that are angry about gentrification are always fully aware that what they're of what they're actually mad about. There are several things to be upset about, but really nobody is upset about sidewalks being repaired or accurate signage for crosswalks and pedestrian walkways and children play here or whatever and things being maintained in their neighborhoods okay nobody's nobody doesn't want their neighborhood to be flourishing and to look like it's cared for i think the thing that is upsetting about gentrification is that it's actually about how clearly it showcases that we only value people that consume because we're always like, oh, it's usually, you know, white people because they generally tend to have more of the wealth in this country. So white people move into a poorer neighborhood and everything transforms and gets more expensive. And then all of a sudden that neighborhood's great again or whatever. Somebody literally said that to you about our neighborhood like in your Uber, like literally said, oh, there's more white. It used to be so bad, but now there's a bunch of white people. I mean, part of that is the tax, uh, you know, the tax increase in up. taxes, yes. not go up, but, you know, you get more money from people who have more money. Oh, right? yes. I mean, it all is serving that purpose. But like, that's like very circular, right? Like, yeah. of course, poor people are going to stay. And not that this is the only contributing factor, but of course that factor will not help poor people escape poverty, right? Like that. What? That you're not getting as much tax money from poor people, so those areas are going to be less flourishing. Yes. And this is like perhaps most 
visible in like schools, right? Like, oh, which is absolutely. like honestly criminal. That no, it is criminal, and I think that's what people are bothered by. Right. But they don't. It's too hard to to fix that problem because there's too many questions that need to be asked. So we just like we're just like, oh, these annoying white people are moving into our neighborhood, changing it. You know, there's a Starbucks in every corner now, etc. Which is like whatever. But the root problem is that we've decided that these people that make less money and can pay less taxes are dirt spoons. And so they get what they deserve. They get a shitty school that doesn't have air conditioning in the summer. They get a shitty whatever playground. They get no infrastructure. Nobody cares about them. Their kids come to school with like insane levels of traumatic events and pass that to their teachers who are managing a class of like 30 plus kids yes. and buying all the supplies out of their pocket for these kids. Yes. And like, I mean, it's just a recipe for a disaster. And yes. like it's, and that's what I'm saying when I'm saying like, it's, it's, it contributes to the poverty cycle, right? Like, yes. And I mean, literally what that quote was saying, they will always be given a dirt spoon and it will always be a struggle. Like that is what people are mad about. And gentrification, in gentrification, and that's just an example of how we, that's a literal, very clear example of how we value people that can consume or contribute to the economy more so than people that cannot. And then how that cycle continues because we don't value those people. So they're always a dirt spoon. I mean, yeah. I mean, just like if you <laughs> yeah. want to see the one of the biggest examples of like, people being valued in this country for their wealth like hurricane katrina right jesus christ yeah like, i uh, yeah, let's not even get into low-key like, the the sewer where all the people are in the water that i was like wow hurricane katrina like i it literally came up for me well everyone's sleeping in the gym yeah, reminded me of hurricane katrina yeah. I don't know if that was a nod at all because mm. that seems like probably a pretty Hurricane Katrina is not the only event where something like that has happened, but like yeah. it's interesting that we can take that social Americans can understand that from or can see that in that scene in the movie. Yeah, that takes place in South Korea. Like it immediately conjured that up. Right. Yes. Back in the good old days. When we had woke Kanye. Right. Oh. Oh, man. Rest in peace. R.I.P. Um, okay, let's move on. Like, we are getting deep. I get it. That is what this podcast is about, though. It's called The Parallax Review, because we're getting deep about shit. Sometimes we're silly. Sometimes we're like, fuck capitalism. <laughs> okay. So. So I just wanted to mention that this movie really particularly, I think, hit home because we're just surrounded like we're like wading through a moat of corny ass boring ham-fisted social critiques like you know what like coming right off the tales of joker and doing that podcast 
Yeah. This feels pretty damn good. Uh, 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 uh. Nobody can see me, but I'm dancing in my chair. Like, yeah. Oh, you went right into what I wanted to talk about, too. So go go ahead. I mean, I feel like, I mean, these this movie and the Joker even, aren't even in the same league. No. Um, but since we talked about it recently and it's like a major thing happening right now, mm-hmm. like... We might as well bring it up. Um, But I feel like... I don't feel like I know (laughs) that this movie does a much better job depicting a descent into nihilism, a loss Mm. of hope. Um, For example, one thing that really hit me was the dad's quote when they're sleeping or when they wake up in the morning from having slept in the gym. Oh, and the sorry, Mr. Um, Mr. Kim's son is like, Dad, like you said you have a plan. What's your plan? Like, Mm -hmm. how are we going to fix this? And he's like, I have the quote here. You know what kind of plan never fails? No plan. No plan at all. You know why? Because life cannot be planned. Look around you. Did you think that these people made a plan to sleep in the gym with you? But here we are now, sleeping together on the floor. So there's no need for a plan. You can't go wrong with no plans. We don't need to make a plan for anything. It doesn't matter what will happen next. Even if the country gets destroyed or sold out, nobody cares. Got it? And like... Oh my god, yeah. (laughs) That scene tore me up. Yeah. Yeah. Especially that line, like... Do you think these people made a plan to sleep in the gym with you tonight? Mm. Like, in this gym? Mm -hmm. Like, when you look at, like, homeless people on the streets. Oh, my God. Do you think people made a plan to, like, have giant, like, legs with open wounds and, like, you know, just disgusting, like, tattered clothing and they plan to, like, sleep out on the streets in the middle of winter you know like yeah yeah do you and yeah and it just like you could feel this father's just like having totally given up like yeah any plan i make any like rock i hold Mm. comes back and punches me in the face like i'm i'm out there's no hope who cares? Yeah, didn't he say something about like you could shoot up a place or something? He says something that was extremely nihilist. He says you you could shoot. I don't know. He said something, he said something shocking. No, it was. I remember it being. He said shocking. something like nothing matters. Yeah, right? he did. But I thought he said something shocking, like you could do this thing and this shocking thing, and it doesn't matter. Hmm. I don't remember. But it's fine. I don't. We'll have to wait till it comes out on streaming. Um, yeah. Do you have any other? No, go. Just jump into Okay, I I brought up that immediately after seeing this movie, you know, I'm trying to rack my brain for any other movie that I've seen that sort of reminds me of the themes of this movie or is, was, had similar goals or even structure, and I'm sure I'll think of a bunch more later, but the two that came to mind, well, you brought up 
the movie that we saw the music box like a month ago that 80s schlock horror movie society um which does in fact have a minor parallel to this movie in that there is a sort of parasite theme but it is the rich that end up being the parasites of not just the poor but anybody who's just not in this rich club Anybody who is a dirt spoon gets literally devoured. Well, right. The whole premise is that this main character thinks his family's really odd and mm-hmm. like feels like keeps having these nightmares that his something's going on with his family and that mm-hmm. he doesn't belong. It's and and stuff like that. And I mean, come to find out that you know this family, this rich family that. This rich family adopted him and they had been grooming him to feast on like yep. with their rich friends. Yes. Right. Like the whole time. Like at one point they make it abundantly clear that like, yeah, you may be we did adopt you and you may have like lived with us and lived this life with us, yep. but you're still a poor person. Yeah. Like you're, you're still not We still one know of us. where you came from. Yeah. And like you're not, yeah, exactly. You're yeah. not one of us. Like there was somehow some sort of stench or whatever. Yeah, on him. like the smell. Like, sure, parasites. they didn't necessarily say. They that, did not say that, but that's, more or less. Yeah. So that is like a, I would highly recommend that movie to people, especially since it's almost Halloween. Um, oh my god! Or, well, not when not when this episode comes out, it will not be. Halloween anymore, but watch this movie anyway. Right. It's 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 a good Halloween movie. That the just as a quick aside, the monster at the end is like one of the most insane feats of like um what do you even call practical it? Practical effects. Practical effects I've yeah. seen in my life. Body horror, right. if you want right. to call it. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um I'll put a link to that movie in the show notes. It's called Society. Um But besides that movie, the other one that came to mind is also a horror movie that came out. Did it come out at the beginning of this year? Oh, Lord. Fucking Us. Jordan Peele's Us. Wading through a a moat of awful, ham-fisted social critiques. Yeah, because that's what that movie is. I'm sorry if you liked that movie. I'm sorry if you thought it was profound. It's not... And it could not have been a weaker sort of treatise on these sort of ideas of class inequality or racial inequality, etc. I even like a few months ago, I went to my parents' house and we literally happened to click onto the Twilight Zone episode that the Us movie was inspired by. It's like... 22 minutes long and it is i'm gonna say 50 percent scarier and a hundred percent better made (laughs) than jordan peele's us i love jordan peele i want only the best for him but us was garbage and it is not an effective or even an interesting social critique no i there's uh... For me, there was not almost nothing to glean from that movie. I no. think I gave it two stars on 
letterboxed and did you give it like a one and a half or also uh, two? i might have given it two as well yeah yeah because he tried he made a movie yeah sorry i got locked out of my notes <laughs> um i would say that another thing that we watched recently that slightly reminded me of this was close up and that, oh. that idea of kind of playing the part like oh my God. close up by abbas kiarostami mm-hmm it's about it's a true it's a movie about a true story of a guy who pretends to be a director and to kind of buddy up with this rich family and the mm-hmm. whole time they love him i guess on on some level that they like him until they find out he's not the director yes and you know then they then they accuse him of stealing yeah and take him to court yeah et i mean they are livid <laughs> i always say etc yeah you do i like brent strewing cross told me to stop saying etc in podcast shout out big ups brent strewing cross big downs <laughs> just kidding <laughs> no um you say etc and i kind of like it at first i was annoyed but i do kind of like it but anyways it doesn't matter so just the fact that these this family was able to have the respect of the rich family, the the Park family, as long as they kind of played their parts. Oh my god! Interesting to me. Yeah, can we talk about the language used about playing a part? Sure. Um. So there's multiple points in the movie where Mr. Park is talking about their different the different help that they've hired and he says something like i like this person they're really funny they're a great worker and they never cross the line and i remember the first time he said it i was like what does he mean by cross the line i I, they don't ever explain it he says it again after they fired another person and then at the end in that final climactic scene where Mr. Park and Mr. Kim are in the park's backyard for the party and they're both wearing those Indian headdresses and Mr. Park is conspiring with Mr. Kim and he's like, oh, my wife loves surprises and like we're going to go out there and like pretend to be the bad Indians and like attack my son and then he's or attack my wife and then my son's going to come out and like save her and it'll be so cute. And at this point, Mr. Kim is like, you can tell the nihilism is truly taking over because he is pretty much unwilling to play along at this point. And he's like, do you love your wife? He, he like questions. It's like, I thought he said you must love her. Or, or yeah, he, he says you must love your wife. And, but he sort of says it in an almost accusatory way. I, I read, but maybe maybe not. Maybe. Because they had had a previous conversation about loving the wife. It's fine. He doesn't seem to be responding in the way that Mr. Park thinks he should. And in that moment, Mr. Park switches. He stops conspiring, stops being cutesy, and he immediately just says, Hey, you're getting paid extra for this just play along or whatever well so i don't think that's 
quite what happens. I think... What does he say? What he's doing is crossing the line between being a worker and, like, a friend. Yeah. And, yeah, so he he essentially... Yeah, I, I thought you made it sound like he was upset for some other reason, but maybe not. No, yeah, no, but you he, gotta let me finish. He says, um, yeah, just think of about... Just think of this as part of your job. Yeah, he was like, think about of, of this as part of your job. But you can tell he has something switched in his brain. And then in that moment, I realized that the line crossed the line or crossing the line in his brain essentially is you've stopped subscribing to the social construct that we've created. So I hired you, you do what I say, I can, I can pay you whatever I want, I can let you go, as they have done with multiple other hired help, I can let you go for any sort of made-up excuse, I essentially own you, and you don't mean shit to me. That just reminded me of that video. Anyway, you don't mean shit to me, but we're both going to play along, okay? That is the sort of unwritten social construct that he meet social contract is what I mean, that, that Mr. Park and Mr. Kim have sort of both decided to agree on. And Mr. Kim, quote unquote, crosses the line when he decides that he doesn't want to agree to that social contract anymore when he breaks that contract. So the contract is, we don't talk about the fact that I own you. I mean, essentially. Right. And the, the difference is that you say they both agree to the contract, but Mr. Park drafts the contract and oh, sets out the terms. of necessity, Mr. Kim agrees to the contract. Yes. Right? You know, like yes, it's not it's not a two way street. Yes, which is it's often depicted as right. Yes, you enter into an agreement with your employer, etc., etc. Wow, that was too loud. It like blew up the thing. Anyways, Mm. you enter into an agreement with your employer, whatever. Yeah, like that's not a two way street. Yeah, that's. It's, I mean, it's not. It's yeah. fake a two-way street, but it's actually not. No, you're agreeing to... to I mean... It's different. He's a, Yeah, right. He's agreeing to play his part, be the role that's provided for him. Yes. Like, and just, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, so that, that was really interesting, and I didn't... That didn't click until that moment... And that is sort of when I was less on the side of Mr. Park or less sympathetic towards, I should say, because that's just a it's just a weird position to be in in general where you have so much sway over somebody's life. So that sort of conjured up a parallel example of that sort of social contract, but in a crueler way. So there's a podcast called You Must Remember This, hosted by Karina Longworth. Um, 
And it just came out with a new season. And this new season is focused on a very old Disney movie that was half animation, half live action called Song of the South. That movie has hasn't been, I think, officially re-released since the mid 80s because it is essentially in the same sort of vein as Gone with the Wind. It is essentially one of those movies or narratives about the antebellum South. Well, in this case, it's supposed to take place just after the Civil War. But it is a movie that posits that black people were happier and are even desirous of being enslaved. So we're happier when they were slaves and are desirous of being slaves again. So it's a weird, dumb children's movie. But in all of these subtle ways, it posits that notion in the same way that Gone with the Wind does. And that sort of reminded me of that in a weird way, because there's a social contract. And I feel like movies like that or books slash movies like Gone with the Wind paint this sort of sunnier picture of slavery because they would like to also act as though there was a sort of social contract that was enjoyable for both parties. And by complaining or talking about the actual truth of slavery is crossing the line or breaking that contract. Anyway, that's the parallel I saw. Well, I mean, then that brings us to, in a weird way, roundabout way, a better Jordan Peele movie. Yes. Called Get Out. Oh, Which yes. everybody likes. Everybody I mean, likes. It's part of that movie, right? Oh, it's yeah. This black man going to visit the white uh, girlfriend's family. And, yep. they, you know, the, for all intents and purposes, he fits in, but. But, <laughs> you know, he's still a black man. Yeah. That's the whole thing, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, you know, don't don't you get it? Like, you, you can't really, like, be part of this family, you know? Like, Never. Yeah. We're just going to, you know, use your body for our own purposes. And, mm-hmm. ugh, anyways. Yeah. Okay. That was that was a that movie was a win for Jordan Peele. Oh, absolutely. We don't talk about. We don't talk about the us. other shit. Ooh. All right. We okay. Real quick. Charlie and I have not seen any of Bong Joon-ho's other movies. I started watching Snowpiercer, not going to lie, didn't like it and stopped watching it. But since seeing Parasite, I'll definitely go back and watch all of his other movies. Yeah, I probably will, too, watch all of them. Yeah, because, (laughs) I mean, from what I've read online, most of his movies are about class inequality and some of them are about how he grew up under the shadow of like the Korean War mm. and the effects of having the American military presence in South Korea. So I'm interested in that. I mean, and dude doesn't beat around the bush about it either. I read that in relation to his movie Okja, he made the comment, um, well, it's sort of about 
from what I can tell, this love, or not love, but this relationship between a woman and an animal Mm -hmm. and how that um, kind of gets exploited by other forces and, Mm. and such. And he says, you know, capitalism turns love into something ugly. Ooh. And turns living things into commodities. Well, like well, he's not beating around the bush about what oh, he he has to say. He's saying it, uh, you know, in his movies. Yeah, yeah. It seems like he has a lot of critiques of society, capitalism, etc. Yeah. So I'll give Snowpiercer another try. Truly. All right. Let's uh, move on to mm-hmm. kind of look and feel. We've really gone over like. Yeah. So much. And I honestly could keep talking about this for hours. I know. Um, but the aesthetics in this movie, I thought I thought everything was on point. Everything felt very real and believable. Like I put here, dingy felt dingy, opulent felt opulent. You felt like you were in two different worlds Ugh. in the two different worlds, yes. right? They, that is masterful. The differences between just the Park home and the Kim home, like, the Kim home is, okay, yes, in a basement. They only have one do- one window, and it is cluttered, filthy, and confined. And in contrast, the Parks home is sprawling. It's very private. They don't have a drunk man pissing outside of their window every night. And it is sparse also. There's just huge areas of their home with, Nothing, no furniture, nothing, not even a plant. Truly a difference. But I did appreciate that their house was like really cool and not a McMansion. Yeah, but, it, was a, it was a, you know, architect's home. So that makes oh, sense. Oh, yes, it does. Yeah, I forgot about that. Is it, are McMansions, you know, prevalent elsewhere in the world? Is I don't that know. A, is that a, an American thing, an American it staple? feels... Very American, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, and we talked about this a bit earlier, but mm-hmm. the whole going downhill and going mm-hmm. uphill. Yep. You know, the Kim's house was uphill, you know, in a nice area. The, mm-hmm. Then you go down, down, down to the depths, essentially, to get to the... I'm sorry. The park house was uphill. Yes. Um, and you go down, down, down flights of stairs kind of to some like subterranean looking area of the city mm-hmm. where the the Kims live. And at the end of the movie, um Kevin, the son of the Kim family has to go up kind of like a mountainside oh, to yeah. look down and see the the park house yep. to see his dad flashing him like a message from the basement. Yeah. That was wild. And just really quick, uh, the the different levels of poverty even because the the former housekeeper's husband literally lives like several le- layers below the park's house and his living area is all gray walls, no windows, and essentially no like barely any human contact even. Um and I think it's interesting when we talk about nihilism, he seemed like he had fully reached nihilism to the point where he almost seemed insane and had a weird devotion to Mr. Park. I but, wouldn't say he was nihilist. Okay. A nihilist is kind of like, so ni- nihilism philosophically is like there's no inherent meaning in the world. 
Sure. Uh, but then the way a lot of people typically use it is like nothing matters or whatever, which isn't really a good representation of the philosophical view. Okay. But I don't think he was a nothing matters guy. I think he had fully embraced his position. Oh, okay. Like worshiping, like maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it was the other end of annihilism, like yeah. coming out and just like identifying with your position fully. Yeah. That's what I felt. I okay. thought he had literally gone to the deepest depths of nihilism and come out on the other side where he was sort of just like, I've fully accepted my thing. I adore this guy that I live beneath. Like, and then I have no problem just like fucking everything up when I get above ground. Like he, nothing mattered to him. Just the part where we find out that the dude is switching the lights on for Mr. Park oh as he comes God. up the stairs, like in order. Yeah. From the, you know, from the basement, he's like triggering those. Yeah. It's just he like. You can't even see him. Yeah. That is, that was wild. Oh my God. Yeah. I forgot about that. In terms of the cinematography, I feel like you could talk for a long time about what was excellent about it it was sort of perfect at portraying in the most subtle ways how different these worlds are that people in the same town can live in a few examples there's that scene where the kim family is stuck in the park family's house and they're like half of them are hiding under the coffee table and um Mr. and Mrs. Parker laying on the sofa, but their son is outside in his tent in the middle of the yard, but it's pouring rain and everybody's sleeping. And then he wakes up and he on the walkie talkie is like, I can't sleep. It's uncomfortable. And the dad is like, Mr. Park is like, well, just come inside. Like you're fine. Like you can go sleep in your warm bed. And the kid's like, no, I don't want to. I want to be out here. Because to him, being out in that tent is so different from what his normal sheltered life is like. You know, he's out in the elements, he's alone, it's cold, it's uncomfortable. To him, that's a game. And you're literally, like, told that he can go back inside or whatever. But, like, that image of his tent just getting poured on in the bigger picture window of there's this whole safe space that he could go to and parents love him. And then visually, we soon after that are taken to the Kim's home, which is literally being rained on and rained into. And it's unlivable. And it's not a game. It's not cute. They don't have a warm bed to go to. I mean, they eventually do at the gym, but it's not theirs. Like... It wasn't even a bed, right? What are they on, yeah, like, what, cots? Or yeah, like it's, like, mats? some... Yeah, I think they're, like, mats on the floor. So, like, that visual sort of sinking. So, like, the tent with rain and their home that they all four live in with rain and how the different interpretations are. And there was another scene that was super subtle. The final scene where we see Kevin or the Kim's son fantasizing about getting rich enough to buy the park's former home. So in his fantasy, we're back in their living room with that huge picture window. And we're seeing his fantasy play out through the picture window. It's beautiful. And then the transition shot transitions to his 
homes, his actual home's basement window that's like grungy, it's disgusting, it's glum, it's dark. And then we pan down to him sitting on the couch and this is what his real life is, not a fantasy. And he's just like sort of looking at the letter that he wrote his dad. And you can see in his eyes that he feels empty, but he's still sort of going to cling to this fantasy. And that was crippling. That was really tragic. Yeah, it goes along with the dad's quote earlier in the gym when he's like, when you make a plan, that's how you... It's almost like when you make a plan, that's how you determine what's not going to happen or whatever. Yeah, sure. And so like when the son's finally like, I made a plan and I'm going to come get you out. Yep. The joke is that's not going to happen. No. It's never gonna it's never gonna happen. And and we talked about this right after we saw the movie because I left the movie being like, Okay, I'm confused about the ending because were they trying to tell me that he was going to somehow magically make millions of dollars so that he could eventually buy that house and get his father out? I was like, I don't feel like that's what the movie is trying to say. Like that ending seemed really sad to be giving that message but i couldn't figure out what that ending was and then we talked about it and you were like no it was clearly it was meant to only be a fantasy and that is what he is clinging to he will always be a dirt spoon he will always be in this poor impoverished position like it's it's a pipe dream and so then i was like okay that makes sense but then you said that you overheard somebody else that came out of the theater with us that said, I really liked it, but I didn't understand why they needed that epilogue part, referring to the fantasy about finding the dad, meaning that she left the movie fully believing that that Parasite and Bong Joon-ho were trying to tell us that he does, in fact, fulfill the fantasy and he magically becomes that wealthy And it's a win. And so she thought that ending is saccharine or unnecessary. And that's how she viewed it. And I thought that was really interesting that we sort of came out with a positive, a middle, and a negative all from the same theater. And yeah. Yeah, it was obviously left up to an interpretation on some level. I don't think it was. Yeah, I don't think... I think that person watched it wrong. Sure. I... (laughs) I believe it was the intent of the movie to show that as fantasy. I mean, the yes. dude didn't have his scars from his brain damage, if I remember correctly, or his brain surgery. Because oh. when he leaves, he has the scars behind his ears and stuff. Yeah. I don't think he had that in the fantasy. Oh, my God. Do you think he was just crazy? No, I, no I'm okay. not. No, that's okay. not what I'm saying. Because remember, he was like laughing. Yeah, but he got over that, I guess, okay. sort of. On, on, on a level no i don't think i think that would make the movie that would annoy me sure um and that doesn't mean that's why it's not the case but it doesn't i don't believe that's the case that's i'm, what the I'm saying you didn't have the scars in the fantasy like it was oh a in the fantasy he did yeah okay gotcha gotcha what was your favorite scene uh the flooded house that's okay. what i put i mean yeah. that was also a really rough scene to watch but that's why you know Mm, yeah there was a lot of emotion in that scene oh my god yeah my favorite scene 
was the entire sequence from the former housekeeper's husband beating Kevin over the head with the rock, going upstairs with his bloodied face, grabbing a knife, and then causing absolute mayhem at that party, into Mr. Kim stabbing Mr. Park. Like, that was, like, that sequence was beautifully choreographed, beautifully played out. It was just the right kind of chaos that I wanted for the movie. And it it was visceral because, like, I really, really, really did not hate or resent the Parks really until only a little bit up until that scene, mostly. Because I was like, oh, they're so oblivious. They're so wealthy. They have no idea what's going on. They're so insulated. Everything's just sort of a game to them. But but that sort of moment where Mr. Kim and Mr. Park sort of confront each other, the line is crossed. I was definitely, when he made that Ugh, stinky face, I was ready for Mr. Kim to fuck him up. <laughs> Did you notice the housekeeper's husband? And I was thinking this too as he came up. I was like, he hasn't been out of that basement in how many years? He comes outside and he's like squinting real hard because like obviously he hasn't seen the sun in years. Oh my God. Yeah, you're right. Well, they did make it a point to show that he would come up when the parks were gone. Did they? Yeah. Remember his wife talks about how they would listen to records. Oh, that's right. Yeah, They did show that scene. But he doesn't often come up. No, he does not often come up. So he he hadn't seen it. He does uh, sure okay. So he hasn't seen the sun very much in the no. last few years. No. Yeah, that was my favorite scene. Cool. Yeah. Um, acting was great. I liked everybody. I thought that for some reason I thought uh, Mr. Kim and Mrs. Park were probably my. I thought they were probably the best actors. Mrs. Kim and Miss. Mr. Kim. Mr. And Kim Mrs. and Park. Mrs. Park. They, I feel like they got a lot of significant scenes, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, for some reason, was really struck by the former housekeeper and Mrs. Kim when they're in the basement and there's sort of this, there's this power struggle. And it, it's so weird, the subtleties, because the former housekeeper is like, you know, on her knees and begging and she's calling Mrs. Kim sis. Mrs. Kim like doesn't like that. And then as soon as everything is revealed and the former housekeeper is like, what? I have you on video. I know you guys are frauds. Then Mrs. Kim is like, oh, sis, whatever. Like she calls her sis. I don't know. That scene, that whole like debacle scene was, I thought, really well acted. I just really liked both of the female matriarch characters Mm -hmm. there. Okay. We had, we do have one more thing to talk about that is kind of an important scene in this movie. Yes. The sex scene. It's not even a long scene, but it's that same scene when their son is out on the lawn in his tent and Sorry. Mr. Kim and his kids are hiding under the coffee table while Mr. Park and Mrs. Park are on the couch. And Mr. Park and Mrs. Park start to mess around on the couch. And, you know, there's typical dialogue. And then it's getting hot and heavy. And Mr. Park is like, he says something like, Do you still have those underwear? 
yeah, do you still have those used underwear from Yoon's girlfriend or whatever? Yoon is their old driver. That they, they fired because the Kim sister planted underwear in the car to get him fired. And he does get fired because they think she, this whoever this girl was, must have been an, on drugs to leave her underwear in the car. Yes. And so Mr. Park on the couch, they're messing around. And he's like, yeah, do you still have those dirty underwear? It would make me, he was like, it would make me even more hard if you put those on. And Mrs. Park was like, oh, you have to give me drugs. I need drugs. And so they're literally getting super turned on by role playing these sort of lower class sort of situations and roles in which they know they will never be a part of and are not relevant to them. But just like how their son is pretending to, you know, be roughing it out in the rain like an Indian in a tent, they are turning each other on by pre- pretending that they're just some random people in the backseat of a car on drugs having whatever wild sex in a way that they will never have. That I just thought... It's just further proof that nearly every scene in this movie is really hammering home the differences. Yeah. Yeah, You like you said, and we could probably find more. You are saying every scene is important. Every scene means something, which is pretty phenomenal, honestly. But oh, Yeah. Yeah. So meaningful. Let's go over our final thoughts. I loved this movie. I want to see it again, which is a high compliment from me. I want to go back and see all of Bong Joon-ho's movies. High compliment from me. I, again, recommend this to everyone. I think everyone needs to see this, especially if you fit into the gold spoon category, which I feel like I fit into. So I haven't rated this on Letterboxd yet, but I give this movie four and a half stars. I like it a lot. I think it's good. It gave me an emotional reaction, which is a big star factor for me if i don't get an emotional reaction from a good movie then it 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 can only ever reach like three and a half stars so yeah this movie four and a half out of five stars for me cool great i um will definitely also see it again i'm gonna probably be like evangelizing about this movie Mm -hmm. which is always kind of something i do with something i really enjoy right like i'll text everybody i will I will be like, you have to see this. I'll probably be talking about this all day at work tomorrow. Oh, I've yeah. I've almost already launched it out into the work discord, but I was like, okay, you know, I could wait till you tomorrow. Oh, my God. Um, I came out of the movie theater and I had to go to the bathroom <laughs> and I was like, sort of like, what am I going to rate this? But like my rush to like rate it while I'm going to the bathroom after the movie, like further solidified for me that uh, I should give this movie five stars. Wow. And a like. And a like, a heart. (laughs) I don't do that often. And this was like, I have very few five star anythings in my life. And like this movie, I don't know. It was like, I know I hesitate to say perfect, but like mm. it was like it was a great movie, like a fantastic movie, life altering almost type mm. of movie. And yeah. I feel like that's the type of five star movies. That's the type of movie that I I give a five star. So that's that. Um, before we wrap it up, 
You want to tell me something you've been interested in reading, listening, watching? Yeah. Um, I have been rage walking and just generally walking off all the Lou Malnati's pizza I've been having lately um, and listening to the podcast The War on Cars. This podcast is made by three people. I think they are all based in New York City or have been at one time. But they talk about how the world, sorry, not the world. They talk about mostly how the United States is set up for cars and not humans and how that harms us in the long run um, and how much better and more efficient our cities would run if we got rid of cars and focused all of our efforts and resources on improving public transit. Um, Because if you think about it, cars are death machines. Um, Anyway, I would highly recommend this podcast. It's not all negative doom and gloom. They are very relatable. They're extremely funny. They're super informed. And they have a lot of interesting ideas and thoughts about what our world could look like. Sorry, I keep saying world. I'm so like United States centric. There are so many other countries and cities around the world that have great public transit situations. Um, Anyway, how much better the United States would be without cars? Better public infrastructure. And with better public transit and infrastructure. Cool. I still need to listen to it. I mean, I'm in complete agreement, but (laughs) yeah we really do not like cars but it's hard to sort of just suddenly get rid of them because the world is still set the world i'm gonna stop talking i'm done america's the world maria oh my god see everything i just said is null everything i talked about on this podcast i'm a fucking hypocrite what about you? What do you? What have you been listening to, watching, reading, eating? I've been listening to an audio book about former Chinese Communist Party leader Deng Xiaoping. I was just interested in that aspect of history. Um, it's been pretty interesting so far. It starts out with him being a kid. I mean, I'm still at his university-ish years. He isn't really in university right now, but it's it's interesting the the different worlds people grow up in mm. and live in. Yeah. And, you know, China in the early 1900s was a much different world than anything I've experienced. Yeah. It's called Deng Xiaoping, A a Revolutionary Life. Yeah, I I can't give it a rating yet because I'm not. It's a long book and I'm not even halfway through it, but I'm enjoying my trip so far. Okay, so we'll put both of those in the show notes and we'll see you in two weeks. Yup. Thanks, guys. All right, see ya. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye.